2: Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Thanks for joining me on Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. The Rotary District 7410 online auction fundraiser is back. This year, there's a flea market, too. Marsha Lockman will be here with all the details. Also, starting for the first time ever here in Pennsylvania... The Keystone State Challenge Academy will open, and I'll welcome Brock Schulteis to Special Edition. He's the Director of Admissions and Recruiting and has all the information. Starting us off today, we're going to meet Pennsylvania Supreme Court Justice Kevin Daugherty. He has the details on the Autism in the Courts Task Force recently created in the state. Justice Daugherty has the details on how our local court systems are involved and how your experience plays a vital part to identify gaps in the system. Justice Daugherty, thank you so much for joining us today. Nice to have you here with me on Special Edition. And you are involved in something that so many people across Pennsylvania are just starting to realize is out there. The Autism in the Courts Task Force. Where did all this come about?
3: Well, I can share with you, probably in the early 2000s, when I was a trial judge in the family court in Philadelphia, It was a delinquency case. And after I convicted the child, I now had to determine whether the child needed treatment supervision. In my questioning of the child, his behavior appeared to me what I had perceived as being belligerent, uh, if not downward downright rude, and I, I'm thinking he's incorrigible, and the concern is I did not necessarily want to judge him to linger because it would given him a felony record for the rest of his life. He was over 14 in Pennsylvania. That being said, as I was becoming somewhat terse, his mom asked to see me on the side and shared with me that he had Asperger's, and I have to tell you, I thought I was a forward-thinking judge coming from Philadelphia, and it was like a punch in my stomach. I had no understanding or clue what Asperger's was. So it really, really caused me to have a a moment of self-reflection and and self-humiliation, that I thought, here I am doing the right thing, and I'm not even aware of autism. So at that point, I decided to educate myself, and then... Uh, With the lack of information that I realized I had, I was fortunate to ultimately become the head of the Philadelphia Family Court, so I educated all 25 of our judges that worked with me, and through that, um, I've learned that education, self-education leads to judicial reform, and I thought that is where we're going to go, and it was from that that I educated my probation officers. In the Philadelphia uh, juvenile area, as well as all uh, hearing officers, and then I was blessed to have ascended to the uh, or get elected to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So I figured, what I did in Philadelphia, I'd like to take for the whole Commonwealth.
2: And from what I understand, the way that you went about this was a little unique and something that a lot of people wouldn't expect—a listening tour. What what was that all about?
3: Well, you know, I I, I guess uh, once I became an justice, I realized the secret getting ahead uh, is getting started. So, w- but we were uh, confronted by the pandemic, as you know. So, what I decided to do was uh, in, to. to to advance this message and to learn what are the issues through the Commonwealth, we developed a virtual tour and we did the four quadrants of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And we invited any and everyone to take part. Those who are on the spectrum, the parents of children on the spectrum or adults on the spectrum, we had over 60 plus or so justice system stakeholders. We probably had about 1,200 attendees. I know I had over 200 plus judges. Uh, We had great media following and um, it, it was very interesting. And I thought it'd be best to listen, to learn what our people need in Pennsylvania as opposed to espouse what we think we should provide them. And it has been incredibly educational. You know, and as, as I often learn, I said, when you educate one person, you can change your life. But when you educate many, you can change the world. Well, I wasn't going for the world. I was just going for Pennsylvania.
2: Well, it's a start. Pennsylvania, I think think in your case is a start. So what did you learn?
3: I learned that there's a dearth of information. First and foremost, I learned that there, for example, one in 56 adults are diagnosed as uh, as being on the spectrum. I also learned that one in 44 children as, as a result of the 21 CDC uh, statistics, one in 44 children are diagnosed. Yet I'm in a system in which the majority of families and people who come before us are not socioeconomically privileged. So I thought the operative word was diagnosed. If one in 44 are diagnosed, how many of the children and adults that come before us are not diagnosed because of the lack of insurance or the lack of awareness? So, uh, what I really learned was that there is a plethora of resources, but they 're located in more more likely than not urban areas, so that our rural areas of Pennsylvania were not having the the opportunity to access those resources. I also learned that This is not something that can be diagnosed like bipolar or or conduct disorder. It can't be done by a quick evaluation. It's a lengthy and long time process. So I needed to learn so that I could teach our judges who can work in conjunction with the families before us and, 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 and connect our people to the resources available.
2: Wow. That's an awful lot to learn. And then to have to turn that over and put it into practice. That must have also been a very interesting road.
3: Well, it's been a long two years, but um, I have to tell you, it's well worth it. What we've done is after we did the virtual tour in July of 21, I gathered with our major stakeholders and my stakeholders have happened to be the, the Department of uh, Human Services uh, uh, Bureau of Autism. We're working with Drexel University, what's called the AJ Institute on Autism. And and, and so we're, we're working. We, could, we met. I'd say it was July in Hershey, Pennsylvania, it was at the State Trial Judges Conference that I was able to convene the other stakeholders, we sat down and we thought, let's process and and let's sift through the, the massive information and let's pull out the salient points, the repetitive issues. And as a result of that, we created a task force an autism task force. And what we're hoping to do with the task force is to continue working in conjunction with all these departments throughout Pennsylvania and develop what we could call as a county roadmap. I I think it's apparent that many of the challenges facing the intersectionality of ASD with different facets of the justice system I think many of this are due to a lack of resources or or, or socioeconomics. And I think but the child in Philadelphia on the spectrum may have the same needs as an adult in Altoona, Pennsylvania. And I think Pennsylvanians are deserving of equal access to justice. Even if you fall within the spectrum, if we're going to be a just system, we have to educate. I I guess what I realize is one doesn't have to operate with great malice to do great harms. See the absence of empathy and, and understanding are sufficient. And I think that our system sadly has an absence of empathy, but more so understanding. And I think this is going to do great for uh, not only people on the spectrum, but it's going to it transcend and work with other intellectual disabilities and mental illnesses and, and everybody who comes through our courthouse.
2: Wow. That is, it's amazing how I can see exactly where you're coming from, that it is going to spread. And you mentioned the task force, and here our listeners are well uh, familiar with uh, Jennifer Rogers, who is on the Court of Common Pleas in Luzerne County, as well as um, we also have a member of the task force from Lackawanna County. Carrie Browning, she's the deputy director Mm -hmm. of the Department of Human Services uh, of the Office of Youth and Family Services in Lackawanna County.
3: So I could tell you they are two rock stars for NEPA.
2: Oh, I bet. I absolutely I definitely would agree with that. And that's why it's so nice to hear that there are that you're reaching out. You're actually coming out of the courtroom into so many other communities and so many other areas.
3: Well, it has to be a conversation, but let me say, it's a conversation that has to be had. You know, if we really want to dispense justice, then it has to be dispensed so that the people who come before us understand it. And I've, I've always said that we judges, we're only as good as the information we receive. If you're someone who may not understand the social cues as I do, or may be on the spectrum, it's not fair for us to stand in judgment without understanding how they see the world.
2: That's very true. And you don't know until you walk in someone's shoes exactly the way they see the world. So where are you hoping to take this now? You've got a great start here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Do I hear you maybe knocking on doors just to kind of pass it along to other states?
3: Oh, well, you know, they say, yeah, you can't clean someone else's house until you clean your own first. So I'm still in the process of cleaning our house. But yes, we are starting to get uh, some attention from other states because I believe we are the first court in the country that is trying to address the need of autism. What we really need to do is start to collect relevant data. We We can tell you anecdotally from our personal experiences, if we had an adult or a child in front of us, who, are, uh, who has been through our system, but we don't have hard raw numbers. We need to collect that data because I firmly believe that we have a substantial number of uh, adults in custody and children in placements and families torn asunder as a result, not of bad parenting, but as a result of a lack of appropriate understanding. As a result of being on the spectrum.
2: So, our listeners, and I just think it's unfair. Our listeners who are hearing you today, Justice Daugherty, um, what can they do? can they get in touch with you can they get in touch with their the local folks in their communities what can they do in order to help you out
3: What they can do, what they can do is they can contact their local courts. What we're trying to do is we're developing a network through the counties and through their Department of Human Services. But since I'm from the court system, you can reach out to your court system, to the court administrator. You can send a letter to me uh, or attempt to contact me. I can't promise that I'll always be at the receiving end of the telephone call with my job, but I I, I can promise that everything that is sent to us is, is reviewed and, 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 And and we try to vet it. We have the Bureau of Autism headed by Anina Wall. uh, She is the central person in Pennsylvania that deals with autism. And we're working hand in glove with her. People can reach out to their office and share. Unfortunately, I can't get my hands involved in the day-to-day issues regarding a court case. But if there's a miscarriage of justice based upon a lack of understanding, I need to know that. We need to know that. And let me give you just a brief example. How often judges are blamed for not knowing or being not empathetic, yet what could happen is that one of our employees in their quest to do their job may not allow parties inside a courtroom because they were not subpoenaed or they're not the named parties. That could exclude maybe someone, a social worker or an advocate or a TSS worker from entering that courtroom who will share with the judge the needs and concerns of the individual that's standing before that judge. We have to get The rank and file employee in our courthouses to understand that every life is important and every issue must be addressed. It's up to the judge to decide who's coming in. And that's that's an imperative uh, issue that I have because I know through my own experiences that I've been told or received letters saying, oh, you want to entertain my, my, my concerns when I wasn't even aware because maybe a court staff thought they were doing the right thing by precluding someone from coming in
2: the courtroom. Does that make sense to you? It certainly does. It sounds like you're coming off the bench and down into the rest of the courtroom in order to get the information that you need in order to be fair when you go back up on the bench.
3: Yep, that's the beauty of being an elected judge. We are we are of the people.
2: Well, and I think that this is probably one small part that is going to start to make a big difference because. Just when you have the opportunity, as I do today, to speak with a Pennsylvania Supreme Court Justice, I'm a little bit, well, kind of awed in the fact that you carry such power. But on the same time, it's also wonderful to know that you are of the people and what you're trying to do is to help all the people. And sometimes that doesn't translate well.
3: I I agree with you. I guess they say justices is is blind until we judges give it eyes.
2: Well, I am certainly so excited and very happy, uh, Justice Doherty, that you were able to join us today and get the word out. So I'm just going to give you the last word. What would you like our listeners here in Northeast Pennsylvania to know about the Autism in Courts Task Force?
3: I'd like them to know that there are resources within your county ready, willing, and able to provide assistance. And if there's not, we need to know about it. And what we're doing is if you have a concern, you reach out to your local uh, community uh, county court or you reach to the Bureau of Autism. And I am the justice in uh, this court. I'm based in Philadelphia reach out to me or my staff.
2: Thanks once again to Pennsylvania Supreme Court Justice Kevin Daugherty with details on the Autism in Courts Task Force. If you would like more details, get in touch with the county court system in your county. Coming up next, we're going to find out all about the brand new Keystone State Challenge Academy on Special Edition. Next on Special Edition, I'll introduce you to Brock Schulteis. He's the Director of Admissions and Recruiting for the Keystone State Challenge Academy. Brock, welcome. It's very nice to have you here. And we are going to talk about the Keystone State Challenge Academy. And anybody who looks at the name is going to see that it's C-H-A-L-L-E-N-G, capital letters, E. What's all that about?
4: Well, that's uh that comes from uh from the National Guard. So there is a national National Guard Youth Challenge. I know there was a little redundant, uh program. And it's uh and it's really put on by the Guard, the National Guard because of the um uh, the experience they have with youth through recruiting and as well as a vehicle for uh federal funds to get to each state that has a challenge academy. So the National Guard at the at the uh, national level, <laughs> not to be redundant again, has uh, has oversight for us, and uh, they provide the uh, the base for the academy. And then each state um, goes in and uh, makes it their own, makes their own mission, um, you know, and their vision uh, through you know the state legislature, uh, the director of the academy, and most of most of the challenge academies throughout all the states. Uh, fall under their Department of Military and Veterans Affairs as a vehicle for oversight and funding.
2: So what exactly happens at the Keystone State Challenge Academy?
4: Well, what happens here is is we provide, uh, you know, 16 18-year-old high school-age Pennsylvanians, Pennsylvanians who are in danger of not completing high school, a means to achieve the self-discipline education and life skills necessary to discuss succeed as a productive citizen. We are a residency school, uh, five months uh, child that's fallen behind in high school, maybe not doing well in that particular environment. And that's been happening a lot more, especially with COVID, uh, can volunteer to come to our academy where it's structured, it's disciplined. We use a military academy model uh, that, you know, with with a hands-off approach, Uh, to help these kids uh, be successful in in attaining their uh, high school diploma or their GED.
2: So you're talking about somebody who is 16 to 18 years of age and they're going to actually be living there?
4: Yes, yes, for five months. We're fully staffed uh, with team leaders, senior team leaders, uh, a nurse. We have four counselors, four certified teachers that... uh, uh, work through the local capital area intermediate unit, uh, which is a, uh, uh, a subunit of the Pennsylvania Department of Education.
2: And where exactly does this take a place?
4: This takes place in Anvil, Pennsylvania. Most people might, might know it as Fort Indian Town Gap.
2: What happens then when a student, or let's take it back a little bit, what would mm-hmm. make a student become aware of this opportunity? Would it be that they have gone through the judicial process? Would it just be somebody at the school? Is it because they're interested in maybe furthering their their life to go into the military? Where does all that come in, Brock?
4: Well, we've, we've had a very uh, intricate program with uh, the Pennsylvania Department of Education. Uh, we've reached out to all the superintendents in the state of Pennsylvania counselors, as well as the intermediate units. There are about 30 intermediate units in Pennsylvania that service different school districts, uh, you know, providing them assistance in teaching. And, uh, we've reached out to a lot of them. We've also have our own, uh, social media page where, you know, uh, parents and, and people can see and get information. We have a website, uh, but mostly we're going through, uh, education channels to reach these students. So a counselor at a school or a principal uh, or even a teacher that's heard about it can refer our program to a child or the child's parents.
2: And when we're talking again about the military aspect, is that a prerequisite or is that just something that is the way that it's structured?
4: It's only the way it's structured. There's no military obligation um, nobody has to join. Uh historically though, across all of the academies, there are there are about around forty of them um in thirty states that uh, about seven percent of um cadet graduates join the military. So it's not very high. It's certainly an option, um, but we don't uh, deter or or favor them going in the military. It's totally up to them and uh within their uh post residency action plan.
2: And talk a little bit about that as well, because it's not like once their time there is up, they're done, right?
4: Exactly. Um, a child can learn a lot in the five months they are here. There's no external distractions. Um, so they're totally focused on academics, um, service to community, physical training, health and hygiene, leadership, followership, job skills, and citizenship. But all of the the great things that we teach them that they want to learn and they want to be here can, can really fall off dramatically. So what we have done is all of the academies do this. They have a post So we marry up our cadets with a mentor. Usually they tell us who they who they want their mentor to be. And we take that person and evaluate them to see if they are eligible. You know, they go through state, you know, the volunteer state checks, um, They also can't be an immediate family member. So what that mentor does is he takes the post uh, residency action plan that to get the cadet um, authored, you know, with the assistance of teachers and the counselors to uh, continue their improvement through their life. And that mentor reaches out to them either uh, in person, uh, by phone or, or, you know, online. Nowadays, it could be uh, once a week, twice a week, once a month towards the end. To ensure that that cadet has the support, uh, that he or she needs to maintain and, uh, attain their, the goals that they chose. Now those goals could be graduate high school, get a job, uh, attain their GED and apply for the CSSD here in Pennsylvania.
2: It's interesting because as I'm hearing you speak, there could be other people who are hearing you as well, and they're saying, oh, this sounds like it's something if somebody's having a problem, but then if you read what you need to qualify for admission, Mm -hmm. it's not something that is court mandated or the court's not even involved. So can you give us a little bit of the qualifications for admission and the other oh, considerations absolutely.
4: as well? Absolutely. Like you said, number one, we are not um, in an adjudication process for children that have been convicted of, uh, you know, a felony, you know, if they, if they were to have been a, uh, an adult, they're not currently, they can't be on parole or probation. For other than juvenile status offenses or misdemeanors, uh, when I say a misdemeanor, uh, children under eighteen generally can't get a misdemeanor; they can only get a juvenile offense, uh, unless the status of the crime is elevated. So we're not we're trying to reach the kids before they go down a path of perhaps criminal behavior. Um, you know, also. One of the harder, maybe not harder, but one of the eligibility criteria is to be free or willing to be free from the use of illegal drugs, alcohol, and tobacco
2: products. And that includes not only smoking, but chew as well?
4: Yep. Uh, Chewing tobacco, vaping, uh, none of that is allowed here. Um, And they just have to commit to uh, being free from illegal drugs, alcohol, tobacco product, vaping, stuff like that. And some of the kids, it might be hard for them because uh, I don't know if you've ever quit smoking uh, uh, or perhaps quit drinking or something like that. Uh, sometimes it's hard, but our counselors here are uh, trained and, recognize, and can recognize the signs of, uh, you know, withdrawal perhaps or just kids having a bad time.
2: So let's say someone is listening and they're thinking that, and again, it's son or daughter. So it's available mm-hmm. to do male and female. Yes, and it is. Let's say someone is is listening, and they, they they still have to go through an interview process, though, right? How does that work?
4: Well, yes, they do have to go through a, an application process, interview process. Um, it, for those uh, for your, the viewers that are listening, you know, it's similar to uh, a college application process. Um, it takes a little while. It's not just throw out a piece of paper and we take your kid for five months. We can't do that. We got to make sure that the uh, the parents also are on board with their child coming here. We want to make them feel comfortable and ensure that our program is the right fit for the child and the child is the right fit for our program. So the application process, there's medical forms, uh, there's education portion of it that we get. If a kid has an IEP or a 504 from his home school, home high school, we take that and we will continue to use that plan uh, when they are here in the school. Our counselors will talk to a child's counselor from their home school to ensure that they're getting the best they can and what they're supposed to get under Pennsylvania law.
2: The other thing and... This 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 is probably the toughest part, Brock, because you're dealing with 16 to 18-year-olds and I understand exactly what you're hoping for that you know you're able to put them on the right path. Sometimes that comes with a little bit of things that they're not used to, but That's true. They're all going to want to have fun. Where does that come in?
4: Well, we we're not just strictly, you know, like a military school where there is no fun to be at. Um, the child's day is pretty much planned from the time he or she wakes up to the time they go to bed. Um, they're guaranteed to get at least eight hours of sleep at night. So they're going to be actively engaged during the day. It might be academics, you know, making up those classes they need to go back to their home school and ready, hopefully, to um, graduate as they continue forth, you know they may spend the five months here, go back to their home school and go through their senior year there. But they also going to be doing some really good things. They're going to learn job skills, um, perhaps familiarization with uh, in the trucking industry, um, uh, UAV type stuff. Uh, we're trying to get partnerships with uh, serve safe. They can learn some valuable skills with uh, food service. Um, we will have. Uh, competitions, sporting competitions between the platoons. That's up to our commandant and our highly trained staff of about uh, 35 team leaders. And uh, they will um, have intramural sports. We're going to have an awesome gymnasium here. It's just about done probably in about four or five more months. It'll be completely done. Um, So, And there are athletic fields here as well. So there's going to be more than just Uh, being marched around and told what to do, when to do, and how to do it, they're going to get a chance to be uh, leaders and followers. Some of the cadets will be in charge of their platoon. Some will have to follow. And then that'll flip-flop, and those that were following will become the leaders of their platoon. And I I venture to say that that that's fun.
2: So I guess that means that they're going to be allowed cell phones?
4: No, there are no cell phones um depending on how we uh finally determine contact with uh their parents um they may get their cell phones for an hour a week um but they will be well they'll, they'll even be taught the write letters they're gonna have to write one letter a week um they will get to talk to their family whether it's through their cell phone which probably will be the way we do it cause I don't know about you. Have you seen payphones uh, around lately? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they will get to talk to their parent or their uncle or their grandparent, whoever they would like to call. Uh, that's that's their family uh, while they're here. Uh, but no, they won't be able to have their cell phones with them while they are attending the academy.
2: So this is relatively a new concept since, what, 2018?
4: Well, here in Pennsylvania, yes. Uh, Governor Wolf and the legislature uh, voted it in under Act Fifty-one, uh, And we're very appreciative of the uh, legislatures here in Pennsylvania and, of course, Governor Wolf for bringing this into existence. This program, however, uh, on the national side, has been around since 1993. We've had uh, approximately, um, oh, this is national statistics since 1993, not here, uh, 186,700 uh, Youth Challenge graduates. That's, and a, performed,
2: that's an impressive number.
4: Mm-hmm. Listen to this. They've also done 12,320,533 hours of service to their local communities. And we'll continue that here in Pennsylvania.
2: Wow. Now, anybody again who might be listening... Is there a cost? Because I know you said it's it's involved with education. So if someone was attending public school or whatever, but how will that work?
4: Well, um, there is no tuition. It is uh, free of charge for a student to attend the academy. Now, the family may have to buy some uh, initial toiletries, some special socks, some boots, uh, some physical training clothes, uh, minimal expense. Um, as well as the school district does not give us any money directly. What we do is we get funded 75%, 25% federal state funding directly to us. So we take, we, as as an academy here in Pennsylvania, take no money from local school districts.
2: So when do you expect the Pennsylvania first ever cadet class to be ready to begin?
4: 16 July and I'm looking forward to it.
2: That's exciting. Do you already have some people signed up?
4: Yes, we do. We have uh, we have about 25 people signed up or or in the I'm sorry, are in the process of submitting their application uh, from anywhere from uh, Philadelphia to Hazleton, Harrisburg, up in Tioga County, um out west. Uh, near Altoona, all the way out to Dubois. Uh, we're hoping to reach the entire state because I want—I personally would love that every youth in the state that's eligible to at least know about the program and be able to apply. Excellent. So we're not... Yep, yeah, I don't want to just get everybody from Harrisburg because we're close to it. You know, because I think if we get a round group of cadets, I think that in itself... Um, is a is a process of learning to understand, uh, you know, the diversity of uh, of our program and of Pennsylvania and of the United States.
2: Well, is there anything, Brock, that we haven't mentioned that you want to make sure that our listeners are able to take away, especially if you can uh, give us once again the how to get in touch with where to find you on the Web and Facebook and all that stuff?
4: Oh, yeah. There's First of all, I'd like to say that we are still continuing to hire. We're looking for senior team leaders and team leaders um, to uh, round out our staff. We're going to hire about 20 more. Uh, And it's very important that uh, a lot of people apply so we can get the best of the best for these kids. Um, We can be found by simply Googling Keystone State Challenge Academy or whatever search engine your listeners prefer to use. Um, And that's the Keystone State Challenge Academy. And we'll be the first one. You could also find us on Facebook uh, by doing the same.
2: And you're also on the Pennsylvania website as well?
4: Uh, yes, yes. That's uh, when you Google, you'll, the first. generally the first link will be uh, our portion of the Department of Military and Veterans Affairs uh, website. It's very, it's kind of on the long side. So it, I don't know if your listeners will be able to write it down. That's why it would be just easier to, you know, search it through whatever search engine.
2: Now, when all of this comes to pass and the doors open, we're going to have to have you back so you can tell us about uh, what exactly is going on. And maybe we can even get a cadet to join you.
4: I think that would even be better to have a cadet join and uh, and hear from here firsthand, uh, you know, what all the good things that we're doing here from from the horse's mouth, we'll say, you know, the cadet themselves, he or she.
2: Thanks again to Brock Schulteis, and if you would like information, go to dmva.pa.gov and click on the link for Keystone State Challenge Academy. Rotary Auction next on Special Edition. It's back and bigger than last year. Marsha Lockman is the District Rotary Foundation Chair of Rotary District 7410, and she's here to tell us about their online auction fundraiser. And this year, there's a flea market, too. Last year's auction raised $28,000 for all kinds of Rotary programs, so let's get the details. Marsha with Rotary District 7410 is back. And I have a sneaking suspicion you are going to tell us about that fabulous online auction fundraiser that you had last year. It's back this year. Oh, Marsha, what do you got? So many good things. Oh, yeah. Last year was so good for us.
1: We had a record year for per capita giving to the foundation and to Polio. And the reason why is because we did this. Open to the public, silent auction online. I mean, with COVID, we couldn't we couldn't do all of our regular fundraisers, so that really helped our clubs. And everybody chipped in. We got donations from different businesses and put some personal items out there, like antiques and and different things, so that um, we were able to raise twenty eight thousand dollars. Five of it went to polio to supplement our polio funds for polio eradication, and the twenty three went to the annual fund. Now, the annual fund for the foundation actually gives us back money into the district for rotary-driven projects. So any of the 41 clubs in the district can apply for those grant funds and do a local project and use funds from the foundation. So it's rotary-driven projects by actual Rotarians and communities. And every, every district around the world does that. There's Um, There's about 135,000 clubs around the world. And every club, there's Rotarians that do these projects. So for us, um, we're going to do the auction again this year. It's a little bit with a twist because we've said it's also a flea market. So Rotarians who have things, and I don't know about you, but many, many people are downsizing and they have extra things. They don't know why they have extra things sometimes, but they have extra really good stuff. And they can't use it all. And they've they got to have a place for it to go. So why not sell it at the Rotary auction, flea market, and use those funds to actually put back to project work in the community?
2: And so, how how is all this going to work, Marsha? Because I get the online auction. I saw how well that worked. So how is the flea market aspect going to happen?
1: Well, the individual, like... For me, like I'm a little bit older than I should be to think about being on rollerblades. And I have my rollerblades that I bought when I was a little bit too old to be buying rollerblades. I only use them twice. So I put those out there and they're in the original box with the original value price on them. So whoever bids on them and gets them will get a heck of a deal. When those sell, then that money will go to the foundation and I will get credit for that donation to foundation and then whoever gets the wins the bid for those rollerblades I'll work out with them how we get them to them whether I drive them to them or mail them to them
2: or however they can get there you're gonna skate them to them come on Marsha, admit it you're dying to use the one last time <laughs>
1: uh, no, no. Uh, no I, I know better now <laughs> so I won't be doing that but they're they're beautiful skates and uh, there's not a bruise on them so I'm hoping somebody who loves rollerblading will pick up those skates and and put them to good use because in my closet they're not at good use. So, and there's a lot of items like that.
2: People so are they? Have, so they're going to be online then? You you as the yeah. person who's going to make the donation takes a picture and and gets it to the Rotary. Is it only? Is that limited to only Rotarians? Um,
1: to put things out online, we're,
2: this year we're doing it with Rotarians putting things
1: on. And it goes through our central hub. So we're, we're watching that to make sure things are, uh, you know, they're good quality, gently used if they're used items. So, um, you know, we're watching out for that, plus our donations. And then all the clubs that have events like um, the fly-in, drive-in breakfast, the uh, wine fest, the brew fest, the, uh, w- the tasting things that go on, the uh, golf tournaments. All the clubs that have those are putting some tickets out for those things. The Ghost Walk and Jim Thorpe, there's tickets out there for a visit to Mock Chunk and the Ghost Walk and things like that. There's all sorts of different things, meals, um, bed and breakfast days, you a variety like you wouldn't believe. So it's it's going to be quite good. I've looked at some of the items and I'm actually quite um, taken aback by the variety this year. Last year we had some good variety, but this year I think we're going to even have
2: better variety. You well, know? I know last year you had chocolate. Is there chocolate involved? Oh, yeah.
1: Gertrude Hawk is
2: in for uh chocolate lover's
1: feature again this, this year. For It's a $300 value, $25 a month
2: in chocolate. <sighs> wow. Yeah. Wow. My chocolate <laughs> and your rollerblades, and we can take over the world.
1: <laughs> That's right. Uh, I know there's an air fryer out there. I know there's a smoker grill. I think is out there. Um, a travel bag for golf clubs. A lot of things to look at.
2: So how do people get involved? Now they're hearing this, and I. But this is brand new, right? It just went up on the on the website just days ago. They just go online, go on their computer,
1: into their browser, and type in trellis t r e l l i s dot org slash Rotary Auction 22 because it goes March 1 to March 31.
2: So it's so the 31st is when it wraps up. That's when you find out whether you've won the bid or not? That's when we close it down
1: and then we go through every item and the, the Rotarian who's responsible or the club that's responsible for the item will start working on getting those items out to the people and we tally up all the money and give it to foundation and then uh, give all the Rotarians and the club's credit for supporting the foundation, and then we roll from there.
2: Just in case anyone has heard of Rotary, can you give us a little bit of the background of Rotary in general and of your Rotary area in specific? Sure. Um, Rotary International
1: um, came about because of fellowship of people in the business community in Chicago. There were five or six guys that started having bag lunches together and talking about business ethics and giving back to the community. And um, they formed their first club and then they traveled a lot. So they, everywhere they went, they started talking about it and it grew and it grew completely international now. And it's a very large organization. Like I said, there's 135,000 clubs and they're all around the world in every country. And every small, I mean, you can find them almost anywhere. You'll see the symbol on the side of the road in the beginning of town. You'll see that they have a meeting there. But um, the, clubs, the clubs are basically grassroots people and they work up through the organization. We think globally but act locally. So about 80% of what Rotary Clubs do are right there in their own community, 20% they look at helping the world be a better place to live. And we focus on seven areas of focus, um, disease prevention and cure, economic development, child and maternal health, disease prevention, literacy and education, uh, peace and conflict resolution, if I didn't say that one, and environmental improvement is our seventh area of focus. So the clubs will do project work around that, community work around that, and we raise funds and have a, a foundation. And that foundation will help Rotarians drive projects. Now, most of the projects, the small projects, are in the local community, you know, small clubs, local community, projects in their community. But Rotarians around the world can join together and do bigger projects in communities internationally. So, like this year, our district, with nine clubs participating, are supporting an economic development um, grant to teach. People in Nepal, um, out in some rural communities, how to grow mushrooms and improve their nutrient value and and um, meat substitution, so they can stretch their meat budgets, and then help the farmers have a second place where they can improve their farming income to support their community and their their families. So we're doing that project. It's an international project. Um, Nine clubs are participating. One club joined us from Canada. Uh, One club joined us from New York City and two other districts of communities, one in New York and one in New Jersey. Oh, and one in Nepal. So that's three have joined in this project to fund a small project. It's only that project is $63,000, $64,000. But everybody's jumped in to fund it so that we can do this big training program and provide a group of farmers all the necessary technical equipment and spawn to get started with mushroom farming. Now, that's an international project.
2: And then, of and course, me- locally, there are, everybody has their, has their own in, in each one of your right. areas.
1: Right. They're doing uh, food security projects. They're supporting food pantries. Um, one group supported uh, computers for kids that didn't have them during, you know, having to do all the Zoom education. Another group did partnered with Build-A-Bed and built beds for kids who didn't have beds. There's shopping programs for kids that don't have everything they need, you know, for clothing in school and things like that. The coat project, that's all local. Um, that's all local stuff. The dictionary project where dictionaries are given out to all the third graders in school systems in different communities. Um, <clears throat> support for helping uh, the, the trail along the, um, the river here in, in the Scranton area. Um, they They built that the Wellsboro Club Club put in a project for bicycle repair on the bike trail up in the grand canyon area the rails to trails bike path so i mean there's a there's a number of local projects like you you they're really key to the different areas where people are living things that need to be done and then they 'll do beautification projects or um, making land use better. Like in Pittston, the club down there, there was a library and they had an outdoor area behind it. But a lot of the land behind there was not, not set up to be used. So they helped create a community garden, a place for people to go and walk through a walking path so that they could expand the land use outside that library. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, Rotarians are very creative. And, uh, what they can help in the community.
2: Well, let's make sure that we get enough money raised so that all of these will benefit greatly. So, where do people go? Okay, it's trellis.org slash
1: Rotary Auction 22. They can see a lot of the projects that are out there too, and a lot of pictures from the different clubs and the things that have been going on. Um, there's, there's, I think there's another thing running in a paper somewhere, and Happenings Magazine also has a spread on it uh, this month come uh, for march so you'll see some things around and join in we want
2: everybody in the public to join in once again that auction website information trellis dot org slash rotary auction 22 thanks for listening to special edition a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the
4: stories